0: Welcome to the Billie Jean King National Tennis Center here in New York City. We are building up to the final Grand Slam of 2021. It is the U.S. Open. We are live from New York for the next two weeks. You can hear all of the action on ATP Tennis Radio. We'll be simulcasting U.S. Open Radio. I'll be one of the commentators. My name's Brian Clark, and for this preview of the 2021 U.S. Open, we've got somebody who's really done it all in American tennis. She was a college champion at the University of Florida, represented the U.S. in the Olympics, played here at the U.S. Open for, I would say, two decades. You know her well. It's Jill Kravis. Hey, Jill.
1: Hey, Brian, how are you?
0: I am doing well. It's... That was
1: quite an introduction, thank you. <laughs>
0: I, I'm, well, it's, it's fitting. So we're sitting here at the U.S. Open and it already feels different than it did last year where we were just glad to be back playing tennis, but it was that odd bubble, of course, with the Western and Southern Open before, then the U.S. Open going right into it. There were no fans, but here we've got uh, just more of a buzz around the grounds.
1: Definitely, and that's, it's so great to see because that's what this slam is all about. I mean, you hear all the players talking about how electrifying it is to play here, um, how exciting the fans are. This is the biggest stadium. The stadium is so big here, Arthur Ashe Stadium. So, I mean, that gives its own aura and atmosphere. But, yeah, there is a little bit of buzz. Um, I think it's very exciting that we're going to have full capacity. I think the players are really excited about that, um, and I think everyone is just super happy to be back.
0: Yeah, some things are missing. Of course, we don't have either of the last two winners here. No Dominic team, still recuperating from the wrist injury and no Rafa Nadal. We saw him in Washington a few weeks ago, but that was it for his hardcore summer and really for his 2021 season post-French Open. So no Nadal, no team, no uh, Stan Wawrinka, and, of course, Roger Federer as we go past uh, the past champions who won't be here. Novak Djokovic is the big name coming into this tournament. He's going for a whole bunch of history that we'll talk about in a moment something else that was different last year you know the US Open is you know the ultimate test with the conditions how hot and humid it usually is last year the weather was perfect it it felt like you know late may as opposed to late august it was pleasant and we're sitting here on it's friday the last day of qualifying as you and i sit down and have this conversation it's sweltering right now and we are both sweating already we've been at this for five minutes but after the weekend the weather looks great for next week so i think all the fans that are coming back to this tournament will enjoy some really pleasant weather and that will certainly benefit
1: the players as well yeah, that's nice. I know we're both huddling under this little tree just to get a little shade, but um, yeah, it's it's been really hot these few days of, of the qualifying. I think the, you know, the players have done a really good job of preparing themselves. They're used to playing these hot conditions. They know how to prepare. They know how to get ready and deal with this type of weather, but you're right. It is going to be a little bit cooler and less humid um, starting tomorrow, I think, already and into the main draw. So that's going to be nice. I don't know about the second week. I don't know what what the weather will entail, but it's nice that at least we'll, we'll get a little bit of a relief.
0: Yeah, that'll be nice. And of course, the U.S. Open with the night session so that things usually cool off a bit in there, although... Go back to a couple years, remember Federer and John Millman, how they both sweated through their clothing. And that was a, a nighttime match here at the U.S. Open. So U.S. Open, though, over the years, we're here with Jill Krabis on the ATP Tennis Radio podcast. We've got to talk about memories because you think whether it's, you know, Jimmy Connors and Aaron Krikstein, you think of Federer's five straight titles, think think the great five-set finals we've seen each of the last two years with Nadal over Medvedev and then a uh, team coming back last year over Sasha Zverev. What are your favorite memories from this tournament, whether it's watching it on TV, coming here or playing in it?
1: I mean, I think you brought some fantastic ones. I think there's so many um, matches that I felt like had so much energy and just sitting in the stands with the crowd and just the crowd getting involved and just feeling that. Um, just feeling all those emotions coming from the court and also through the fans. There's just been so many. Last year was, was, was going to be a memorable one because it was just interesting, right? It was just weird not having you, you watch this amazing point and there's like no reaction from anyone. So that was sort of really strange. Um, and and so it's great that the, that the fans are going to be back. But for me personally, I mean, this was my only junior event I played, um, international junior event, and it was the first one I played. So it was the first time I was really on site because I didn't come and watch before then so that was my first time on site my first time being around the professional players so that was something that definitely stands out and then of course the first time I ever played in the main draw here don't ask me the year because I (laughs) am horrible with years but the first time I ever you know stepped foot and knew that I was like directly into the main draw I'd gotten into the top hundred for the first time and that's always a good feeling for a player when you finally break break that top hundred but for me just coming back every year knowing that as a player, I was a, I was a part of this world and I loved coming back. It was, I have to say, even though it was my favorite slam, it was probably also my most stressful because I only grew up two hours from here in Rhode Island and so I had a ton of family and friends come and you always want to perform well for them and that just added a little bit extra stress and pressure for me. So I, I don't say I ever played my best here, um, but I also loved being able to play even though it was stressful, I love being able to play in front of my family and friends and, and be around the people I love.
0: And that's a point you hear from other players, and we're going to talk about the Americans in a bit, because there are 14 now in the top 100 in the ATP rankings, that... Playing at home comes with that extra pressure because it's the your family, your friends, more people are there to watch you, and and that is an adjustment that a lot of people have to make. We'll see, you know, two Americans matching up in the first round. John Isner is the U.S. number one against Brandon Nakashima, who's one of these promising young Americans. So yeah, it's a different dynamic, a different kind of matchup. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the man of the hour coming into this U.S. Open is Novak Djokovic. I always say that it's incredible to me for all of his accomplishments. He's only won this tournament three times. Only is uh, yeah, I say that <laughs> only three because that's a, a dream for yeah. most people. But he is coming here with a chance to win his 21st major, most of all time, and to do something we have not seen in more than half a century, and that is win the calendar year Grand Slam. How much pressure is on Novak Djokovic coming into this U.S. Open?
1: That I mean, yes, there's a lot of pressure there. Um, he's definitely. Uh, obviously thinking about it because that's all everybody is talking about. You know it's on his mind. You know how badly he wants it. But um, if anyone can handle pressure exceptionally well, it's it's Novak Djokovic. I mean, he's been in this position so many times where he's actually put that pressure on himself to perform and to get through difficult situations, to be able to rise to the occasion um, when that pressure is on him. I mean, we've seen him do it over and over again. And so if anyone can handle it, for sure, he's he's one of the top ones that can. Um, But I mean, I think I think you're going to see some nerves. I think it's going to help if you know, if he can get through his first couple rounds, that's definitely going to settle him a little bit. That first round's always I mean, everyone's always nervous. The first round, I don't care who you are. You hear it from all the players. You just want to get that first round under your belt. Um, and he's one that gets stronger and stronger. So if he can get through those first couple rounds, it's going to settle that pressure a little bit.
0: Yeah, we look at Wimbledon. He lost one set before the final. That was in his first-round match. Jack Draper did not lose another set until uh, Berrettini in the final. But an interesting question, because coming out of Wimbledon, you're thinking, okay, nobody can beat this guy. But based on what we saw at the Olympics on and kind of off like in terms of his actual play and the way he seemed to be handling some of that pressure did that put any doubt in your mind he was going for the golden slam in Tokyo so that pressure was there did not meddle does it change your opinion of his chances coming into this tournament
1: for me a little bit I would I would agree with that Um, I think when I saw him play in Tokyo um, you know he he can sometimes get frustrated and upset with himself and we saw it there and I think that's. That's how he expresses the fact that you know he's feeling the pressure. And in, in my opinion, um, he just has to outwardly kind of show that a little bit. And that's just his way of dealing with pressure. People deal with it differently. Some people, um, you know, pump themselves up more. Some people smi- force themselves to smile. But he kind of gets a little bit flustered. And so that's at that moment I thought, like, okay, he's he's feeling it. Um, and you know, maybe the fact that you know he didn't he didn't meddle there. Maybe that's going to kind of release something for him coming into the U.S. Open. I'm not sure, but I definitely think he's going to be feeling it.
0: He's got a a loaded quarter. We mentioned he opens with a qualifier, but a potential quarterfinal opponent would be a Wimbledon final rematch, Matteo Barrettini, Hubert, her catches there, her catch, of course, a semifinalist at Wimbledon who won his first master's title in Miami earlier this year. So it's a loaded draw for Djokovic. Um, we don't want to talk too much about the first round matchups because this will stand up and we'll, we'll come back in a second to Djokovic's quarter. But just a quick look at the first round when you see Tsitsipas and Andy Murray playing, oh gosh, and we don't know when <laughs> yet. We know what Andy is at this point in his career as he is dealing with the hip replacement and the injuries that have followed. We know what Tsitsipas has done here in 2021. How intriguing of a first round matchup is that?
1: Oh, it's incredible. I mean, that was one of the ones I circled right away. I mean, I was I couldn't believe that. That's it's going to be really exciting. I mean, obviously, you know, Andy with his with the surgeries that he had that he has, he's still kind of working his way, but he's one of the one of the best competitors out there. I mean, he's going to be fired up for that match. That's not going to be a, an easy first round. So, I'm I'm excited about that. Sitipas has has been playing well. Um so, but Andy's going to be Andy's going to be fired up for that.
0: Yeah, that's I, I think the one first-round match we will really highlight. Another first-round match, and this is in the the Djokovic quarter. It's the 21st seed, Aslan Karatsev. He plays. Mm Jamamunar in the first round of Spain who's primarily, his best tennis comes on the clay court, but Karatsev, his best tennis has come in the last year. This time last year, the tennis world at large, he was a bit unknown and during the U.S. Open, he was in the process of running off three straight challenger titles. Those are in Europe, but look what he's done here in 2021. He beat Djokovic in his backyard in Belgrade. That was a great match. Now he's into the top 25 and of course that run to the semifinals at the Australian Open. So our reporter, Paul King met with Aslan Karatsev and asked if he could have imagined everything that would have happened since the start of the new year. we went then for
2: qualifying in Doha and no one expected that I would be safe final and was running open. but uh, yeah I played well the qualifying. I get luck with the airplanes not to be in the CoVID flight and then I started to play well I mean the first match, Second match, I was trying to think this to focusing on my game and the match day by day, um, and yeah, I made semis. So after Australia, I mean, how much of the run is just your game improving, and how much of it is the confidence that that winning brings to you? Do you think? It was important just to keep working, not to start to relax. And uh, I played Doha, I lost first. No, second round to Dominic team, and then uh, straight after was Dubai and then was a big difference between the course uh, it was slow course in Doha and then I arrived to Dubai it was very fast and I felt first match was uncomfortable a bit and then match by match I started to start to play better and better I won the tournament and there I just get a lot of confidence from that tournament as someone who's been around the Tour for a few years, I mean now you're sort of winning a lot more, but, but also what's the other biggest change for you that, that all this success is bringing? I think it's the mental part, I think it's more in the head and of course uh, a lot of work done with my coach, we work a lot on the mental part on court, off court, and it's we're working together almost three years. So in the past, I had, uh, I was 150, but with a ranking and then I got injury. And then after injury was tough to come back, it takes me one year. It was on, off,
0: on, off. Uh, yeah, I think we're doing a good job. Back here with Jill Krabis and Jill Karatsev spoke there about the mental part. Is that the difference between trying to just make the main draws we watch qualifying go on and then reaching a semifinal? How much of that difference is just really mental?
1: a lot of it i would say i mean everyone if you look at anyone out here go to any of the matches they can they all know how to play tennis they all know how to hit forehands backhands um but it's them it's the definitely the mental side that makes the difference and and who competes in those pressure moments who can handle those pressure moments the best and karate if someone i mean you ask any of the other russian players that all of them will tell you they're not surprised they were not surprised when he got to the semifinals at the australian open i mean granted that's a huge run we hadn't a lot of us hadn't heard of him before But a lot of the Russians knew him and they were just like knew how talented he was. It was just a matter of time. So it was it was that was the difference for him because he had been playing for a little while. But to make that push and to make that run. And to do as well as he has this year so far, it, he did change something mentally. I, you know, it's just about getting a little bit more committed, more focused, and I think we saw that. In, and a lot of people are saying, like, they they think that's a that's, that's a dangerous uh, one if Krasav can get through for for Djokovic.
0: Yeah, first round opponent for Karacev is uh, Jaume Munar. As we were looking at some of these first round matchups, of course, highlighted by Murray and Sitsipas, uh, Nick Kyrgios, who has not won a match in a month. And he'll play Roberto Bautista. That's always a tough assignment, so there could be some fireworks there. Hopefully Nick is able to get going as he had to uh, pull out of Winston-Salem the week leading up to this tournament. So taking a look at these uh, other first-round matches, uh, Karen Hatchinoff against Lloyd Harris. Hatchinoff had a nice Olympics. Uh, Cam Norris had a sensational 2021. He plays Carlos Alcaraz. How excited are you to see Alcaraz here at the U.S. Open? He's from Spain. He's the next big thing. So he, the thought goes to clay, but Hardcourt might be best for his game.
1: It's funny because I had to I had to pick out five men's matches yesterday for someone, and you're picking out all the ones <laughs> that that I wrote down yesterday. But, yeah, I'm very excited about Alcaraz. I actually just watched him play on television um, the other night for the first time. It was really the first time I watched him play a full match. He was playing Fyuksevich, and he won that match Um but yeah, I, I, he looks good on the hard court, and those courts, those courts that he was playing on were pretty fast, and the courts here are pretty fast. But he is so quick around the court; like I don't think that's gonna bother him at all. He adjusts to those different kind of court conditions really quickly, and so I was really impressed. And um, he's got a good attitude. He's such a good competitor. So I'm, that's gonna be that's gonna be a really good match. And I mean, Nori's had one of his best years, so I mean, that's a tough first round.
0: Yeah. I mean that that'll be a fascinating first round match to watch. Maybe the public who's coming out here to the U.S. Open is not going to line up to see Cameron Norrie and Carlos Alcres, But They if a, should. If you're a tennis fan,
1: yeah. that
0: is a match to seek out whenever it's played. And we're here with Jill Krabis. I'm Brian Clark. It's the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. We are at the U.S. Open where no American man has won the title here since 2003. That's going on 20 years since Andy Roddick won it was the last American uh, singles title for a man anywhere. But somebody there are a lot of hopes behind sebastian corda we'll talk about sebastian corda in a bit 14 americans in the top 100 we mentioned john isner opening up against brandon nakashima we just saw riley opelka in the final in toronto but Let's talk about Sebastian Quarter for a minute. Uh, you just mouthed to me how how much you like
1: Sebastian. <laughs> I do. He's a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. I mean, and we, you and I were together in the Washington D.C. tournament, and I got to interview him for the first time, and he was just he couldn't stop smiling. I mean, he was just so nice and so happy to be there. And then I spoke to another American coach um, who works a lot with some doubles players. Um, Scotty Davidoff. I don't know if you know him, and I was just like, oh my god, I just interviewed him. He's so nice. And Scotty was like, if only we could clone him and have 25 of Sebastian Corda, it would be amazing. That's that's how nice he is. That's how well respected he is. But the way he, the way his demeanor is on the court, the way he carries himself for someone so young, I think is really impressive. I think there are a few guys that are like that. Sinner is another example. I think that um, handles himself extremely well. That is super mature for their age. Um, but I love Corda's game. Um, he's got a good all. Around game, um, he's so smooth. He, for someone so tall, he moves around the court so elegantly. Um, but yeah, I think he's got an amazing future ahead. I just, he's really fun to watch.
0: Opens up against Basilashvili. He's 21 years old, and of course, with Corda, the the big part of the story is the family structure. His father, Peter. Won the Australian Open. His mother was a, a top 25 player on the WTA tour. His sister's, of course, excellent golfers. His sister Nelly is number one in the world right now, just won the gold medal at the Olympics. So there's there's so many voices, and you add to the family group, Andre Agassi, who doesn't travel with him, but he is certainly part of the Corda setup. So Mike Cation was able to sit down with Sebastian Corda, And he, Seb explained how the development so far has been different, and we'll talk about this in a moment, Jill. but let's hear from Sebastian himself about the baby steps he's taken. He spent more time than most his age, his ability level, Futures Tour and the Challenger Tour. Seb Corda speaking with Mike Cation.
3: That was both my parents. They're, they're really big into, uh, I mean, I had like two wild cards, just to kind of see where I'm at with my game, and, and it, it just didn't work out. Um, my body wasn't ready physically, and and either mentally as well. Um, so yeah, my parents were really big into kind of taking a step back, playing some Futures and, and building my way up to playing to play into the Challenger Circuit and, and now here on the ATP Tour.
4: Yeah, it's it's such an interesting route because I, I don't think a lot of people would do that. Why were you able to do that, I guess is what I would ask. Why why did you have that luxury to do so at the time?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, the luxury, I mean, I have a, a great support system behind me. Uh, of great sponsors behind me that, that really believed in me and and really bought into the idea of kind of taking it slow and building. Uh, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to peak right now when I'm uh, 18, 19 years old, and and uh, and yeah, it was just uh, kind of trusting the progress, trusting uh, trusting the journey, and uh, and doing my thing. Were you able to do that mentally? Yeah, no, I I I always hated, I always hated taking wild cards. I just I wasn't comfortable with, with taking wild cards, you kind of, I'd much, for, I'd much rather earn something my way and uh, I'm just super happy with the way that I did it. So
4: where does that mental fortitude come from? Because obviously to have it at 17, 18, 19 years of age, and obviously it runs in the family, I know, but wh- where does that actually come from for you?
3: I mean just, I don't know, Just I think this is just the way I was I was raised, uh, just kind of baby steps in a way. Um, my, my parents are, are super big into that. They, they know how long you, someone can play their tennis career if they're healthy. I mean, you can play basically into your 40s now. There's a couple of guys doing that. And, and, and yeah, they, they didn't want me to burn out when I was super young, uh, when I was 25. I mean, that's 25 to 30s. It's about your peak. So it's, uh, those, are the, those are the times that you really need to dig deep and, uh, and play your best tennis.
4: In terms of the body, you, you mentioned that just a moment ago. How much work were you balancing in the gym work? Versus what you're doing on the court.
3: Yeah, the gym work was interesting because uh, everybody kept saying put on muscle, put on <laughs> muscle, but but uh, it just it just doesn't work like that. Uh, I didn't want to I didn't want to overdo it. Uh, my conditioning coach, uh, Mark, he's uh, he's really big into uh, into a lot of running, a lot of fitness, uh, endurance, endurance stuff, and, uh, and my parents don't believe in kind of weights and getting jacked and uh, and yeah. So I have a great sports system around me. Have, uh, I'm traveling with a physio now. Um, and, yeah, kind of just working on the little muscles uh, here and there, staying healthy, and uh, just try to keep enjoying myself. So where does the hockey fit in? <laughs> the hockey, <laughs> whenever I'm home, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always trying to get on the ice. Uh, I, I know. Yeah. So how does that fit in? Uh, I don't know. I got a, I'm, I'm fortunate that uh, whenever I'm home, there's an ice rink that's about 30 minutes away from me. So whenever I'm home, i got a couple buddies that we always go out. And, I kind of just skate around and, and have fun, kind of just like a, like a de-stress, you know, just uh, being in the cold and, and just really enjoying myself. Okay, but Sebi,
4: listen, I'm, I'm old, right? <laughs> I'm old, I'm a parent, and in my brain, I think to myself, ankle. <laughs> ankle, like I mean, <laughs> yeah. what, you know, how do you balance that? You know, that idea, you need to have that relaxation, fun versus. For
3: sure, yeah, you you heard an ankle. Yeah, things no, happen. I mean, I mean, it's it's a very dangerous sport for sure. But uh, <laughs> but there's luckily no contact. We just kind of go out and just skate and shoot. So it's it's nothing physical. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm always careful out there. I, I try not to do anything stupid or crazy. So it's uh yeah it's thank god nothing's happened so far if if memory serves to
4: i believe one of you is it nelly that's dating
3: yeah so my sister's dating uh, a professional hockey player who plays in the nhl uh andreas athanasiu he plays for the for the la kings and uh yeah it's, it's awesome because i mean I, I idolize hockey players and and to kind of have one in the family is, uh, is it's super cool and and when the when uh, when all the pandemic first started we, he was uh he was with us in, uh, in sarasota so i was kind of going on the rink with him. we, we Luckily we had, a, I know a buddy who and he kind of closed down the rink for us and uh, and we would just kind of skate around and I was just watching him it. It and was, it was awesome. I,
4: I know so many people ask, you know, what you learned from your sisters, obviously you both of your parents.
3: What do you learn from him? <laughs> what do I learn from him? Uh, I don't know, just how tough a hockey player can be. I mean, <laughs> he's, uh, he played basically a whole season with, uh, with a torn shoulder, uh, broken Lord. foot. Yeah, actually the last time I we went to go watch him play uh, he was playing in Tampa against against the Lightning, and he broke his foot right in front of us. He uh, he blocked a shot and it just destroyed his foot. So uh, so yeah, that was that's my last memory of being around him when, uh, in a hockey game. But uh, yeah, they're they're super tough, and, and I idolize those guys. So so how does that translate over for
4: you into what you're doing? I mean, do you does that have any ability to say, okay, these guys are tough? Maybe I shouldn't worry about you know my my hammy's a little tight <laughs> yeah.
3: today. I mean it gives you a little something. I mean if you're dealing something well on a tennis court, you just kind of think about yeah those guys play with uh, punctured lungs and uh, all <laughs> sorts of stuff. So it it makes you uh, it makes you toughen up a little bit. But uh, but yeah, just watching watching hockey players do their thing. I mean the balance that they have and and the skill and the speed that they do is. is uh, It's awesome, and I think that really helps me in my tennis game. I I feel like I'm I'm a pretty balanced person. I try to always be in the in the same position, even in tough shots. So it's uh, it's helped me a lot in in my tennis career.
4: So the physical side there, obviously with the hockey, how tough they are. I I know your relationship with Agassi has been explored at length as well. How much is that mental side coming from him nowadays?
3: Yeah, he's he's a really big help in my career. We've we first started in in July of, of last year, and and kind of just getting kind of just. Picking out his brain a little bit. I mean, he he has so much knowledge in the game of tennis. Uh, in certain situations, certain tournaments, what you do, what you don't do, and uh, just kind of getting a couple things here and there. We're always we're always in contact. Message me after my match, saying a nice job, and and uh, yeah, it just always reminds me to keep enjoying myself. I'm doing something I'm I love to do. I'm very fortunate, and and uh, kind of just don't lose that in my mind. Is it, is it? I mean, is it constant
4: for you? Have you read his book? I mean, okay. do you just kind of like have a Rolodex of things that he might have said
3: to you? Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I, I write down a lot of the stuff that he says to me. Uh, I mean, one of the best things was we went to, uh, to Vegas to hang out with him for, for two weeks uh, in, uh, in December of last year, and we were having some long dinners, like four or five hours, and of and just him just talking, and I was just just looking at him, paying attention the whole time. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, whenever whenever he's talking, I mean, everybody in the room listens, and uh, he's got a lot of knowledge.
4: How how, many, how much is it the stories and maybe something you can learn from the stories, and how much of it is actually analysis of your own game?
3: I'd say, I mean, 50-50. I mean, having my dad there as well. Uh, yeah. They've been on court a lot of times together. They've, they've hung out and kind of just hearing those stories of how they were back in the day, what they were doing, talking about certain players. Um, yeah, probably one of the biggest things I think it was uh, – was I think on Boris Becker's birthday this year they finally like revealed like how Andre got like his serve order. and he was telling me during that during the during the dinners that we were having in Vegas and kind of just hearing those things. I mean, I think it was the tongue, right? Yeah, how it was, he it stuck was the tongue, tongue, and he was kind of kind of telling us that, and and uh, it makes you think a little bit. I mean, it's tennis is such a such an individual sport, but you can kind of learn a lot of things from just looking at over at the other side of the court and kind of just uh, paying attention. But it's. All of that being said, you've got all these incredible minds
4: around you, Sebi. Yeah. You're, you're the one who has to process and That's actually right. use it.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's it's at the end of the day, it's up to me. What, what do I want to take? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I love the game of tennis. I'm always trying to study and uh, kind of having a person like Andre, my dad, and, and Dean Goldfein in my corner with a lot of experience. I'm always picking brains and always trying to get better.
4: As we, as we let you go here, Sebi, I mean, I... It seems like you've matured a lot off the court and we've talked about the hockey side but it it seems like you're starting to relax and have a little bit more fun you've always been a very polished young man and you and i talked really early in your career (laughs) but it it was always very professional and serious and i'm I'm wondering if you're i guess also learning to relax a little bit have a little bit of fun in in these experiences as you're getting to travel the world
3: yeah for sure i mean at the I mean, at the beginning of my career, I'm still at the beginning, but (laughs) when I, after I won the Australian Open, I did have some opportunities to play, and and I was just never really comfortable in my own skin, and and kind of getting those uh, two, three weeks at uh, Cincinnati, New York last year, kind of just being around the players, practicing with them, and and, uh, just hanging out with guys, uh, it made me relax a lot more, felt a lot more comfortable in my skin, and and I think that really translated into my game.
4: Are you gonna? Are we gonna see like a Riley Opelka transformation and go like the art route, full beard at some point? I don't know. Early
3: I don't know. I can't grow a beard, so so that's that's off the list. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's super cool. I mean, Riley has a big passion into art. Um, we talked about it a little bit. He was telling me about his sponsor and. Uh, yeah, it's awesome to have uh, different things outside of tennis that you really enjoy, and, and he's certainly found his. Okay, so Jill, with Sebastian Cordy, won the Australian Open junior title. That's
0: an impressive achievement. But instead of then shooting up onto the main tour, he kind of went back to the challenger and the futures level. It's a, it's a different tactic, and it seems like it's paying dividends. How much guts does it take to take that approach as to the approach we see most other players take?
1: I mean, I think it's very smart. I think, um, you know, it's a big jump from juniors to the pro tour. Um, It's kind of something that a lot of former juniors have expressed numerous times, that uh, it's just another level of intensity and focus and commitment. Um, so to take that middle step, because a lot of people um, skip that step, they try and go right from juniors and go right into the ATP, ATP uh, qualifying on the tour event. And so to play challengers and to get so many matches, one that not only builds your confidence, but you, you're putting yourself in pressure moments that you're able to get through maybe a little bit more often. And the more you can put yourself in those pressure moments where you have to deal with adversity, deal with challenges, deal with things that aren't perfect because those challenger level tournaments, there's a lot going on. You're, you're playing in small venues, small parks, maybe in the middle of nowhere, where you get to the tour level and everything is so pristine almost and nice and everything is just so, so laid out beautifully, that to be able to grind through those moments can sometimes be a little bit more challenging mentally. Um, So to do that, it just makes you stronger as a player, not only physically, but mentally, and you gain that confidence.
0: We hit on this before we heard from Sebastian Kortigil. Just just the group around him, whether it's his family, whether it's Andre Agassi, his coach, Dean Goldfein, worked with Andy Roddick for a while. Uh, how much benefit does that give somebody who's still 21 years old having that many resources around him at his disposal?
1: You know, I, I spoke to him about that in D.C. And I, or I, I actually, I spoke to Sebastian and um, Dean at the same time. And I asked him, because sometimes having so many voices can be a little bit overwhelming. Um, but Sebastian answered it, um, really well. He just said, look, I take, I take just a little bit from each one. And the main goal from working with Agassi and Graf and, um, you know, his father and, and Dean as well, who's had so much experience as a coach, a lot of it was just knowing what their perspective was, um, when they won a grand slam and what that feeling was and, you know, the steps it took to get to that point. Um, the the preparation they took to go towards to be in that final and to be able to get through. Because w- what we just spoke about, it's everything is so mental. So, so much emphasis was on that, I think, as opposed to technically about his game, because I think he's really technically grounded with everything that he has. So, it was more about um, – you know, dealing with that pressure of winning a slam and being in that position and what that felt like to those players. So that's what they expressed the most. So it wasn't so much too much information about his game in particular, but dealing with those moments.
0: Yeah, those tough moments. Last time we saw him at a major that loss to uh, Karen Hatchinoff in five sets at Wimbledon. That was the week of his birthday. Riley Opelka celebrates his birthday uh, just before the U.S. Open starts. His birthday on August 28th. That is the Saturday just before the tournament. And Riley Opelka gave himself an early birthday present. His first Masters final that was in Toronto a few weeks back and you heard uh, Mike and Sebastian talk about Riley Opelka. Mike was a busy guy also able to sit down with the big serving American. They talked a lot about life away from the court including on how he's just more
5: mature. I think I have surrounded myself around some, some cool people and I think it's uh, some I'm thankful for. My my close friends obviously Tommy Taylor and Francis are always going to be my brothers and we're going to be immature and act like eight-year-olds together. But I have friends that I don't act like I'm eight years old around that have had a big influence on me. Um, I have a friend named uh, Matt Chevalard back in Miami, very cultured guy, speaks like tons of different languages. Him and I went, he came to a tournament um, when I was younger, I think one of my first times at Wimbledon and we went kind of exploring around London, something I don't normally do when I'm in a tournament. We went some, Good restaurants. He set up reservations. We went to some art galleries, art museums. Um, we went to. We had dinner with uh, a, a big fashion designer that he's friends with, um, and things like that. I had a good time that week, and and then he would always kind of send me some things. Oh, you're in Rome. Go go here. Oh, you, and um, and so that that got me started into other things, and then I kind of took over from there. I met some some other great people. I've Tim Tim Van Leer is a owns the gallery and he's become a good friend of mine. And as an American guy in Europe, you know, you're lost for a while. It's a culture shock, it just is. And so he's always sending me things to do, uh, things to see that are some things that, you know, a kid from Michigan would never have access to without guys like them. So I I think it's the people that I've been around have really, really made me enjoy my job more.
4: It's, It's an interesting, thing because how does matthew know to reach out to you or how does that even so that start? started
5: he, he owned a, a shoe company called del toro and i was always into fashion that was something i always liked and um and he went to ball terry back in the day when he was a little <laughs> a young guy and then um yeah I started buying shoes from him and and i was just a fan of his his company his brand he had a pretty big brand and um and then yeah just kind of like he came to, I think he started, he came to US Open and I gave him a credential. We hung out a lot in New York and then Wimbledon, he's like, hey, I'm around, I'm in London. And, um, and so, yeah, it just kind of started like that. And um, like I said, one thing led to another and now I've, you know, him and like I said, Tim Van Leer, Frederick Kunath, who's German, Tim's from, from Belgium. I feel like I'm at home, you know, if I lose early in French Open, I'm going to Antwerp and hanging out with Tim and we'll he'll set up, luckily he knows a lot about tennis, he'll set up training for me. <laughs> we'll have dinner every night at his favorite restaurants, we'll go to museums, galleries, and I feel much more comfortable being on the road now. And it makes me enjoy my time on the road. In, in terms of the fashion
4: stuff, obviously as, as we're speaking, I believe Naomi Osaka's got a, another, it's a denim fashion line that's coming out this week. Is that part
5: of a progression for you to, to start doing some more designing? Doesn't work. <laughs> No, nine ninety nine point nine percent of them fail, and it's I'm I'm a consumer, you know. like okay. I, I'm, I'm a consumer. It's something that occupies my mind, my time. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm in the, I'm into it. But like like Fashion Week's gonna be super fun for me after U.S. Open. Yeah. Um, it's just something that. I don't know. That's just uh, happiness has a price. Sometimes I, it's, it's I love it. I like it. I mean, I don't, I don't. Buy labels. You won't see me buying anything. Like, I don't look like a lot of the NBA players. I think they're some of the worst dressed guys in the world, and they think the polar opposite. They're all like <laughs> fashion icons. It's like anyone that's got uh, 20 grand to waste on a on a couple outfits can can dress like that. Right. Like, everyone. They're all wearing the same thing. They all have the same stylist. Yeah. It, it looks sometimes like it's just too much. Um, so I always joke around about that. I like I like buying timeless things. I like knowing where my clothes are made. I like, I like buying from, um, I like supporting small business, but I'm not buying logos ever. I, I like quality product, I like good engineering. I have a girl that uh, this year in London I hung out with, I'm fascinated with, her name's Paria, Paria Farzana. She won the LVMH award, um, which is a big time, that's like, that's like winning the next gen finals kind of. Okay. She won for fashion. that. Yes. Okay. She won that. She's a startup company, small business, made in London. A lot of it's made in London. She sources all the upcycled fabrics from fashion houses that buy a bunch of it. They don't want to use it. It's all um, upcycled, and it all serves a purpose. And she's, she's a badass. Like that. She just is. <laughs> That's how I'd explain her. She's super cool. Hanging out with her was awesome. And when you see her clothes, like, her parents are from are from um, Iran. Okay. And she's. You know, I think that she moved to London. Maybe she was born in London, but she's been there for a long time. You see her clothes; they have these beautiful, like Persian prints, but they're like tech wear that you would find like in a place like uh, where it's raining a lot. So everything makes sense. Like you don't find a Persian print on like a on a tech kind of technical fabric or a, a nylon fabric. That's like so it's built for London weather, rain. Yes. And when I got to see her when we were walking around the city, it was like it wasn't it was. Thin fabric so it wasn't you weren't too warm in it and i see her like wearing it and then it's like starting to rain everything was so functional and like had such a purpose everything she made and it was like nothing was it, it wasn't just for to look cool it didn't have a logo but it was just for function and like and that really like stood out to me and, and um um yeah and she's just a really cool girl and, and i'm uh really inspired by her It was super fun to kind of hang out with her and see her in her element. Uh, we've talked about the fashion side, but the art side—how has that manifested in your life? Especially
4: when you're a guy who's not at home. Like typically, the art collectors—they want to be able to have the piece
5: accessible to them.
4: Yeah. How have you? How have you? It just makes it that? that much
5: more enjoyable when I come home. Really? Yeah. And then I think it'll give me something to enjoy when I'm, when I do have time at home in my, in my career, whenever that is. Uh, you know, I don't know when that's going to be, but when I do get to hang it up or. or when I do have some downtime, yeah, it's, it's – I have a new painting right now waiting for – a drawing from Renus Vanderveld waiting for me. It got installed, and it's at my house, and I haven't seen it yet. Um, it got installed last week, and I'm, you know, itching to go go scope it out. But uh, I have to be patient. And, uh, yeah, and I have another one kind of in the works. I have a few artists I have my eye on right now. And, yeah, that that's – art is is, like, my main – guys like to buy cars some players here you know you see them they they have nice cars or nice watches you see some nice things and my outlet is art when you appreciate the artist and you respect him and you know him and and that's what you're going after like that's what you're going after and a lot of people can't fathom that like can't be like oh i I just cannot see myself spending this for on and i don't even get to pick exactly how i want it it's like and i guess that's part of like the american culture that's not involved in art that I have to explain to people they don't that one's a they don't get it yeah I've
4: I've got to let you go I I do have to ask obviously after Montreal and you know you have these bigger events where some of the paychecks are pretty good how much are you setting aside and how much are you spending on your passions right now right oh that's a good
5: question <laughs> and and trust me your parents might be listening I know your father relatively oh yeah well. no my my pops is <laughs> he's probably he was probably nervous he was probably like man I wouldn't mind him going down here in the quarters then I don't have to <laughs> see a, another swipe like that I'm, no but uh, the, the, explain it to my dad at first wasn't like he's an old school guy it's like hey I want to buy this I'm going to buy this and it's like why you know no but he's been cool he's come around for it he's interested and in he's like he's he's on board like he's like S- send me pics when he gets installed oh you got it. like he he's a fan of it as well it's cool that that like it's not something my dad was into but my dad's open-minded that's why i'm like my dad that's why i got into it he's my dad's a pretty open-minded guy pretty he's a pretty cool guy he's unique he's been in i always brag to people he's had the same job for 30 years i think that's the coolest thing in the whole world like never happens anymore um so yeah i I, he's a fan of it he appreciates it and everything's within reason you know have fun in moderation is kind of what'll he'll tell me
4: Riley Opelka it is always good to chat with you thank you so much for your time and thanks, we Mike just Z. want to make sure we say you look like the rapper Lil Dicky yeah. not so much Phil Jackson it's a new look for you that's continued to evolve huge but I, compliment tremendous compliment
5: Lil that's Dicky. what I try to do tremendous thank you Riley thanks Mike
0: So it's Riley Opelka, and he opens up with Kwon of South Korea. Opelka, one of the biggest servers in the game. That is the big weapon. But life in New York, Jill, as we talk about life on the road and the conditions, it's hot today as we're uh, sweating right now, but it's supposed to be cool as things uh, move on. Is it more exciting to be in a big city like this when you're playing in a Grand Slam, or is it more exciting just to kind of see week in, week out? Uh, uh... as a tour player how, how does that break down?
1: i think it depends on the player i mean there are a lot of players that actually this is their favorite city and they love staying in the city they just want to be out and to them that's a distraction from the tennis um, and just to get their mind away and for other players it's almost like too much is happening so it really depends on the players personality what they like to do and that's just that's just kind of a growth situation like learning about yourself learning what you like learning you know, your preparation before, during and after, maybe even the night before what you want to do. But um, some some players love it. They just want to be involved in all the action and electricity and that gets them pumped up when they go on the court. So a lot of it depends on um, the personality and how you like to prepare.
0: Okay. So there's so much action that's going to unfold over the next couple of weeks. We now have to take a crack at figuring out how these things are going to unfold. It's really intriguing when we talk about, the setup coming into this tournament. OK, we know who's not here, but when you look at who's here, there's compelling cases to be made for everybody. Novak Djokovic going for history. Uh, Sasha Zverev coming off his gold medal at the Olympics, just won the title in Cincinnati. Medvedev was playing so well with the title in Toronto, and he looked on track for another in Cincinnati until he kind of came unglued in the semifinal after that run in with the camera. His Sitsipas has had an incredible year. He got deep in Cincinnati. How much stock do you put into the last two, three months? Or is it, I'm just talking about the players who are the best in the world right now?
1: No, I think you do because these are the, you know, if you look at the last two months, these are the players, you know, that possibly perform well on the hard courts. They like certain surfaces. Those, uh, they have a lot of confidence coming in. They've had a lot of match play, which gives you confidence. Um, So I definitely think you you pay attention to that. Um, You know, I, I mean, we talk so much outside like around tennis about how open the the women's game is but i feel like i mean obviously novak's the favorite but in the men there's so many exciting names to me as well um and you, you just mentioned a, f- a few of them but so many that could get through like a barrettini a Zverev, a a sinner a bublic who's super talented uh a um i mean ajayla seems been playing well medvedev there's so many that i feel like that could go deep and to me there's a ton of guys on the tour right now that are super exciting to watch as far as not only their game style but their personalities as well
0: do you get the sense that we're arriving at a shift where okay we know who's not here Federer, nadal they're getting older anyway so how much longer they'll be out here yeah djokovic is still the top dog but are you seeing more of a i don't know hunger is the word but these younger guys are realizing that hey somebody's got to step up why not me
1: I mean, yes. I feel like that's slowly been happening. I think a lot of the a lot of the guys also needed a couple of years, maybe either to get physically stronger or mature uh, a little bit more mentally. Um, I think that's slowly been happening, and I think you know we we've been excited about some of them for a while, but but it does take time. I mean, it, it, I mean Novak, Roger, and Rafa has been have been in everyone's way. <laughs> um, I mean, I think Murray, Wawrinka, and Chilich have done an incredible job of getting slams during the, their, you know, during those three guys that have just dominated pretty much. But, um, you know, I, I think it, it's important to note that it does it does take time. I mean, a team, I forgot team as well. He, he you know, won last year. So, um, yeah, I think I think they are slowly getting there. I think you, you'll even hear some of the guys say when they play against them, they're like, okay, yeah, I'm not quite there. Like Sinner just said that I think against Nadal at the, at the French. And I also said it in Miami, I think when someone asked him about it, but, um, he said, but I think having that recognition to say it out loud and to be like, okay, I know we're not there yet. That just shows you where their mindset is that they just want to get better and improve. I always feel like at slams, there's always a breakthrough, right? Um, so I kind of get excited about who's going to be the, next, who's going to be the story at this slam. Um, yeah, we all want incredible matches. And I think, I, th- I think we do get, I think we do get a lot of incredible matches, especially the first week when you're able right. to go outside and see all the matches around the ground on the outside courts. It's just everyone just fighting their hearts out. But for me, it's a lot of it is like the story. I get very excited about, like, okay, who's who maybe be the one that gets to their first quarterfinal okay. or gets to their first semifinal. So
0: you just set us up naturally. You're a natural broadcaster. Let's say Karatsev was the breakthrough star in Australia. Right. Uh, French Open? Who was the breakthrough there?
1: I mean, the final was amazing. past right, Djokovic. But you're talking about before then, the breakthrough the story. Break,
0: could that be the Tsitsipas' breakthrough? He had never right. gone yes. deep in a major. Yeah, yeah. That like, that's deep. exciting. Okay, okay, okay so first that's, time in a final. Wimbledon, you could say... I'll say Shapovalov. First Shapovalov played in semifinal. Thing. Felix
1: Arjay first quarter final. Yeah. And I was excited. It was the first time I saw Korda. So, like, sometimes that was the first time I right. saw him play. Um, Hatchinoff was, he was right. super excited. He's such a nice guy. So, I get very excited when he's nice. Yeah,
0: guys you love guys the nice guy, which is good. <laughs> good quality. Who's going to be the breakthrough star here?
1: I'm looking back down now on the draw. We were in a, um, we
0: were in Washington a few weeks ago, Jill, and who did we see win his first 500 title in Washington. That's my pick Center, for the breakthrough.
1: Oh, oh my god! I okay, so I'm
0: not exactly out on a limb here.
1: So right now, my favorites, and I told Center this in Washington D.C. My favorites are him and Corda, right now. Okay, those are my like super favorite ones to watch. I get very excited, um, and they played each other there. So like, they did, after, and they
0: were doubles partners.
1: And they were doubles partners. So it was like heaven. (laughs) No, so after I, and and Sinner obviously beat quarter there because he won the tournament. But I interviewed Sinner after, and I basically told him, I said, I was so excited to watch you guys play because you're two of my most exciting players to watch right now. And he just gave this beaming smile. I mean, it it was, I mean, they they get so excited when the fans, you know, are behind them and stuff like that. And that's why it's great to have the fans back here. But so Sinner's your breakthrough here. I hope you're right. I think that's a good call. I'm, I'm picking Medvedev, by the way,
0: to win the tournament. Yeah. So that was my next question. Yeah. I wanted you to predict the final.
1: Yeah. What about Casper Ruud?
0: That's another good one. I
1: mean, he just did the hat trick, right? Hat
0: trick on clay, all right. on clay. That's true. But in Europe, yeah, yeah, um, and yeah, based on form, certainly.
1: Yeah, I don't know. See that, but that's exactly what we're talking about. I feel like there. When you looked, I'm looking. We're both looking at the draw, but when you look down, I think there's quite a few that can make. A breakthrough. It's, it, I'm interested to see how her catch comes out. Yep. After such a great Wimbledon, because he hit is,
0: with Sinner yesterday. This is oh, were practicing okay. oh, I
1: saw that. Yeah, they posted something. But um, yeah, just just a follow up to right. see how we can follow the Wimbledon up because that was his first real breakthrough at a Slam. So,
0: because remember Miami, he went into a slump after his title. I think he also contracted COVID in that process. Uh, that which doesn't help. Does not yeah. help at all. Um, Okay, so formalizing now. You're picking Medvedev. Who is he going to beat in the final?
1: Who is he going to beat in the final? To win his first major title. um, I'll go Medvedev-Sinner. Wow. (laughs) Why not? Okay. Uh, Well, Sinner's your breakthrough. He's my
0: breakthrough. Yeah, and just for sake of argument, Sinner's quarter, by the way, is uh, Shapovalov and most notably Sasha Zverev. Right. Uh, Bublik is also in that quarter, so it would be Sinner. Uh, Djokovic in the semifinals, you're picking center here? Sure. Okay, so Djokovic in the semifinals. You're saying no Grand Slam.
1: I'm saying no Grand Slam. I like to go out on a limb, though. I just kind of do it for fun.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's all. We're I don't know if I actually here.
1: believe what I'm saying. We <laughs> don't
0: get the same prize money the players do. <laughs> we do have a lot of fun, though. Jill Kravis, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Brian.
0: That's Jill Kravis. She will be part of the commentary team all fortnight long here at the U.S. Open. You can listen to the U.S. Open on ATP Tennis Radio courtesy of U.S. Open Radio. Just click on the Listen button on the ATP website or go through the TuneIn Radio app. And be sure to join us back here on the podcast next Sunday as we'll look back here on the first week of this 2021 U.S. Open. Until then, though, I'm Brian Clark. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis.